0: Hey, everyone. This is Matt. Before we start this episode, I wanted to let you know we're going to be bringing the Over the Edge podcast live to Edge Computing World on October 14th, 2020. We'll be recording live episodes from the event. The folks at Edge Computing World have given our listeners a generous 30% discount. So if you're interested in going, head on over to edgecomputingworld.com and use promo code Over the Edge. There's also a direct link in the show notes. That's Over the Edge one word for
1: 30% off. Hello and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Victor Behel, Technical Fellow and Director of Mobility and Networking at Microsoft Research, and one of the fathers of edge computing. Across a 23-year career at Microsoft Research, Victor has helped shape Microsoft's long-term strategy through research, industry partnerships, and associated policy engagement with governments and research institutions around the world. His seminal 2009 paper titled, The Case for VM-Based Cloudlets in Mobile Computing, spawned the vision for what we now call Edge. In this interview, Victor shares the story behind the genesis of that paper and his experience of the evolution of Edge in the years since. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors.
2: Over the Edge is brought to you by the generous sponsorship of Catchpoint, NetFoundry, Ori Industries, Packet, Seagate, Vapor.io, and ZenLayer. This episode of Over the Edge is brought to you by Seagate, Seagate's new Cortex Intelligent Object Storage software is 100% open source. It enables efficient capture and consolidation of massive, unstructured data sets for the lowest cost per petabyte. Learn more and join the community at seagate.com.
1: And now, please enjoy this interview between Victor Behel, Technical Fellow at Microsoft Research, and your host, Matt Truffiro.
0: Hi, this is Matt Trufiro, CMO of edge infrastructure company Vapor.io and the co-chair of the Linux Foundation's State of the Edge project. Today, I'm here with Victor Behel, technical fellow at Microsoft. We're going to talk about Victor's background and career in technology, his work at Microsoft Research, and his role as a pioneer in edge computing. Hey, Victor, how are you doing
3: today? Very good. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, so I'd love to start out by just asking you about how you even got into technology.
3: How did I get into technology? Well, like uh, millions of other immigrants, (laughs) I actually came to the United States from India in when I was 18 years old, and I started studying. To be brutally honest about this, yes, please. I didn't even think about it. It just happened. You, <laughs> so you I, could, you I checked the I, wrong I could,
0: box on your freshman enrollment I, courses and liked it.
3: I could have yeah, make a nice story that I was like twinkling with this and that, but the reality is I came to school sounded like a good thing. Courses were good. I was good at some of these courses in physics and math. And, and so I had to say, hey, this looks fun. So just, yeah, I got into the time when uh, computers were not as prevalent. They were just about to start up. And so it was, there was a lot of excitement in, in the air. There was like Certainly. this new, th- new thing that uh, we had, you know, which was very, so the, your imagination could run wild and think about, oh my God, what are these things capable of? And uh, what can we do with it? And so just one thing led to another. And so I just kept doing that and uh, that's how it, it all began for me.
0: Yeah, and you, you've spent most of your career at, at Microsoft. Is that right?
3: Actually, I started uh, my career after I got my master's in Digital Equipment Corporation. I don't know if you remember digital. It was
0: I, I do, yes. But
3: Yeah, it was a classy, classy company. Ken Olson was the founder. It was in Massachusetts, right next to MIT. And uh, so when I, I got my first job there, and then I, at that time, I had a job from Microsoft as well. Microsoft at that time was a really small company, less than like 2,000 employees. And, uh, you know, they were looking at OS2, uh, which was, I don't even know if you remember.
0: <laughs> oh, I remember OS2. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. So, the, the cloud didn't even exist. Oh, <laughs> the, air, the internet not. barely exists. It was...
3: Of course, yeah, of course not. Internet wasn't a thing at the time. Not for, really,
0: no. It was, uh, it was a research
3: ARPANET. But, but, tech, they uh, had just brought in the Queen Elizabeth II ship into the Boston Harbor. It was a big, massive company. It had invented the workstations from, you know, going from supercomputers and stuff. And it was on rock and roll. It was uh, doing hardware, software, the Unix operating system that was called ultrix and I got a job in a in an advanced development group at the time. It was uh, they were focused on image processing and video processing and yeah, multimedia. The word the term multimedia didn't exist. And, what, what,
0: uh, what rough year was this?
3: Oh, so this was in '88. Okay. So so I decided to take Digital's offer at the time, as opposed to Microsoft, and then I was there for about nine years before I joined Microsoft Research. But the interesting thing for my life was that Digital used to have this amazing program called Jeep. I think it was called Graduate Education Engineering Program, in which if you applied and there was a big, big process and you know lots of scrutiny and all that. But if you did, you could actually go and uh, complete your PhD and the company would take care of everything, uh, all of the finances, plus give you time off. It was great. I was the only one selected. <laughs> <laughs> wow, and so that was quite a privilege. So I got my PhD at the University of Massachusetts, came back, then in 1997, I think, I decided to leave DEC for various reasons, and then Microsoft Research was about four four years old at the time, and I started from there. And since so I've been there since ever since.
0: Yeah, and you know, Microsoft Research is actually a pretty sizable part of Microsoft. Microsoft spends a lot of money on on research, but most people don't know about it. You know, and when I think of like deep corporate research programs. I think of like Xerox Park. Can you, for our listeners who may not be familiar with Microsoft Research, can you just like describe what it is and how it relates to the core of Microsoft and all that?
3: Sure, I would be glad to. It's a privilege for me to be in Microsoft Research. So Microsoft Research was set up by Nathan Merwold uh, yeah. on behalf of uh, Bill Gates. So Bill is a fascinating human being. But one of the interesting thing is that he wanted to have a research organization and he and Nathan and he you know, got together. They invited Rick Rashid, who was at that time at Carnegie Mellon University, a very well-known professor. He had built up the mock operating system, invited him to uh, head up this organization. And that was around 1992, end of 1992. So Microsoft Research was set up uh, with three principles. One of them was to extend the state of art. The other one was to keep Microsoft uh, viable in the future. But the number one thing was to extend the state of art. So we were built, the organization was built from ground up, not as a place to do research that just predominantly impacts the product, but research that predominantly impacts the entire community, the, the world. And so we were given the mandate to pursue research in whatever we wanted to do in the computer science-related field, math, physics, all of that included, and feel free to publish these research results and papers in the community. So we were set up like an academic uh, department in an industrial research uh, community. The advantage for that was that we had a ready set of problems to work with that the world needed, and there was no pressure put on us as researchers to impact the product right away but if good things happen then great things would happen with the product we would figure out a way to do that so now microsoft research now hosts about a a thousand plus researchers all over the world it has many many labs from bangalore to beijing to montreal to new england uh, to cambridge uk uh, with people who have had phds and gotten phd from some of the top institutes of the world stanford mit cmu berkeley you name them with the uh, personalities uh, of the kind which are very self-driven, it it is built. Bell Labs is a good good example. Xerox Park you mentioned is a good yeah, example. Right. I was at DEC. DEC had uh, SRC and CRL, which is Cambridge Research mm-hmm. Lab and Systems Research Lab uh, Center. In so we had people from there as well. Plus we had uh, new graduates. Plus we had some seasoned people. And the mix is beautiful because if you want to work in some space and you want to learn something about it, you probably have one of the top guys in the world working with you. And that's that sounds it. like an amazing job. It's an amazing job. It's a dream job. I've loved it. That's just why I have not felt the need to move from there. I mean, I just reinvent my job all the time without any shackles, but I do feel responsible to the company. so. I'm heavily motivated to use this uh, trillion-dollar, trillion-and-a-half-dollar company to uh, get my ideas out in front of the world, and that's been a great ride.
0: So, yeah, so. That's, that's really neat. And lots of things you've done in your career. You know, This is a show about edge computing, so I'm going to go right to that. I suspect that edge computing was one of these reinventions. You know, you you look at the literature and there's some some early mentions of edge computing, you know, like the the Akamai guys when they're at MIT, one of the first references of edge computing. But in my mind, you know, the golden spike of edge computing was that 2008, I think, uh, IEEE yeah. research paper, which, which, as I understand it, and doing research for, for this interview actually was a derivative of the, this epic meeting that you had in Building 99. Can you tell me about that meeting and who was there and what was talked about and how this all came about?
3: Sure sure uh, thank you so much it's very flattering that you've done uh, looked it up a little bit and, and you're you're right well, on that IEEE
0: paper personally that made the light bulb go off for me
3: yeah yeah so thank you for that the paper i, th- I believe was published in IEEE pervasive uh, computing magazine and it was in uh, 2009 the 2009, 2008 okay. yeah the 2008 i think that you have is the time when we actually had that meeting. Yeah, let me tell you about that. So, you know, we didn't talk too much about my own research background, but one of the things that I have pushed quite a bit uh, in my life has been the area of mobile computing and wireless communications and wireless networking and things. And so I, I built a part of my research career by focusing on, on those parts of the, of the field. So I was around and I helped with the creation of the cloud computing, in microsoft and uh, the way i sort of did that was we kind of understood that as the company moved from a shrink wrap uh, software company where you would just go to some place and buy that cd and put it on your pc to this services uh, or, or, or the those. 10 the 10 cds
0: right oh, the, <laughs> i remember
3: just yeah <laughs> that's right just that's
0: prior right. to the cloud i think the last release of windows that's was like right. 10
3: cds <laughs> that's right that's right that's right so we would need uh, uh, everything has to move into a massive infrastructure, and we're going to need a lot of networking for that. So, we started working very diligently on on some of that infrastructure piece. But then things were starting to go. You know, Microsoft is one of those companies that, when when it sort of decides they want to go in some direction, uh, it has the power and the intellectual capital and people to do that so then cloud started moving really well it was doing amazingly well now i told you that i came from a world which was wireless and mobile and at that time yeah. mobile was also taken off if you remember iphone or it came out in 2007 and so it was really starting to take off
0: yeah and if I, if I may ask you mentioned research a lot of your research was in wireless what what sparked your imagination about wireless, about mobile and wireless what was it about
3: about that that excited you so that is, yeah, that's uh, interesting. So we'll get back to the story okay. in a minute, yeah. but but that's fine. I think that's a, that's a sort of an interesting question. What sparked it? I think, uh, so as I was growing up, you know, I come from a family where my mother, um, she's passed away, but she's a doctor my father was in the government service, but they had a very service oriented mentality. My daughter, my son, they all becoming doctors. So we have been brought up as well as have a very service oriented. So when I was in tech, one of the things I noticed was that things we took for granted, like internet access, right? We just take it for granted. You and I are talking on this. Yeah. There are four or 5 billion people in the world who didn't have any of that. And they had no access. And it was just sad. It was just like, because we were creating this information divide or digital divide, we were actually contributing to the differential in economic, uh, well-being of people. And because if people don't have information, they cannot make good decisions and then they get left behind more and more. So I observed that quite a bit and I wanted to do something for this. And believe it or not, wireless seemed like the type of tech that could allow us to Kept this connectivity going at a price point where. Well, had- you were very prescient
0: because that is exactly what happened. It turns
3: out it's a lot cheaper to put a macro tower
0: up than it is to dig up a bunch of streets or string, yeah, you know, yeah, wires there, between there you poles.
3: And 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 you know uh, I am I'm, I'm a realist. I understand like uh, business decisions are important. So people are not going to like big large companies are not going to pick up all these towers and things of that nature where there's no business. If people can't afford to pay. They're not going to you know put this up. And so you had to build heck in the unlicensed bands because you know if you've paid a lot of money for the frequency licensed bands, you're gonna to want to recruit the the cost back. But if it's unlicensed and you can build it in a way that the hardware is cheap, uh, software is commodity or is open source, whatever, you could suddenly now have internet connectivity. So that's how I got started in wireless. That's an amazing I, I, story. I, yeah, I, yeah. I wouldn't guess that, kinda, but that's a great story. Yeah, so I wanted to do that a lot. And I pursued that for a long time before this edge happened. I, Craig Mundy, who was the CTO of Microsoft at the time, actually talked to me about the duopoly, which was the cable and the telco duopoly at the time. And, you know, how we must try to make sure that the coverage was ubiquitous, connectivity was ubiquitous. And so we took a 2 prong attack to that. One was to hire people in Washington, D.C. to do the lobbying with the, mm-hmm. with the government mm-hmm. Congress to keep the prices down and keep it. And then the other one was, hey, if you guys don't become ubiquitous, we are going to become. So I took on the tech part of it, which is to sort of like build out uh, technology that could, within quotes, threaten the general telcos to say that, hey, if you don't,
0: you know, Time to accelerate. So, yeah,
3: yeah. If you don't do this uh, and make it available everywhere, we are going to just go in and do it ourselves.
0: I, I'm still waiting for one of the cloud providers to to buy one of the wireless uh, companies. <laughs> yeah, I won't ask you to signal what Microsoft's plans are, but it's certainly it's certainly interesting. It's certainly interesting, <laughs> and maybe just maybe all you have to do is is threaten, right? That may be the right answer. <laughs>
3: I actually actually it's not even about threat or anything. It's it's logical, right? If you think. Uh, logically you have these three c's where you make money you have a computing industry that's mm-hmm. all of us like you know microsoft and uh, you know, even amazon and google and all these people and then you have the content industry sure. right which is netflix and hbo and all would you put then, apps yeah. in that in there? And then you have communication apps. I would put in the computing industry. Okay. So, and then uh, content is little content. I mean, it's like Hollywood movies, you know? Movies, like,
0: TV, yeah. Yeah. Entertainment TV, consumption. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
3: that's right. And then you have the communication industry. So you have these three big, massive industry, I mean, the community, right? And so, I mean, I don't have to say anything. If you just follow it along logically, you can start to see a convergence of sorts between the communication and computing industry. I mean, edge, you know, we we are going to talk about sure. edge more, but edge is the catalyst for that. I mean, you and I are right now talking to each other. We are not using the telco infrastructure at all, but yet we, yet we are doing the things that have classically been in the uh, operators and the carriers space. So yeah. So, and we are investing a lot of money and they're investing a lot of money. There's a lot of duplication of effort. So right there, I mean, you know, like, logically it makes sense. You know, a few years from now, it's going to, some sort of convergence is going to happen and it's going to be for the good. It's just going to, it's going to be good progress because we are reusing each other's strengths and then building on top of it rather than spending time doing the same thing.
0: Well, and you're already seeing some of the convergence. You know, you you look at the mobile edge computing and its and yeah. it's rebrand as multi-axis edge computing because it turns out that most of the companies with wirelines have a wireless strategy, even if it's an MVNO. That's exactly uh, right. yeah. so. Yeah, and so they're going to use the five G core to do the user provisioning and things like that. So that's yeah, yeah. Def- definitely fascinating. Okay, so let's get back to edge. I, I um, <laughs> I'm glad we took that that little <laughs> side path because that's really fascinating. So I th- I believe were we were talking yes. about the the meeting. We were talking about the meeting. Is what we were
3: yes, talking yes. About. So yeah. Okay. So where I was going with that when I was saying that you know I was working on cloud and the infrastructure, where I was going with that was that when things started to stabilize and and I was saying Microsoft is big and, you know, Microsoft is sort of can get things done when, when they put their mind to it. So all that was going great. So, you know, from a research perspective, all that was going great. So now the question for me as a researcher and a person who sort of thinks ahead, you know, many, many years, or tries to think ahead was that what happens what's after cloud, what is, what is cloud. And so, the observation, so what I did is at that time is on that particular day, I actually remember the day. It's October 29th, 2008. <laughs> I remember it vividly. I invite, <laughs> That's awesome. I, invite, I invited some of my colleagues. In particular, I invited uh, Mahadev Satya. He just goes by, he just goes by Satya from yep. Carnegie Mellon. Oh, I know him well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. Great. And then I invited him. I invited Nigel Davis, invited, uh, who was uh, in the University of Lancaster. I invited Ramon, Caseras, I'm not 100% sure which company he was in at that time. And then Roy Want, who is now in Intel, uh, I had invited. And so what we did, and the reason I know these these guys, so if you sort of think about like they, they were from universities and academia, right? And uh, sorry, academia as well as industry. And the reason I invited them is because, first of all, they were my cohorts. and they, I mean, I, I knew them well. They're friends as well. But we used to think about these sort of things like, you know, what would do next? So we invited them to Microsoft Research on Building 99, cleared the entire day for me, and then picked a conference room, sat there, got uh, lunch to be delivered, breakfast to be delivered. And then we sat there and we stared at the whiteboard and said, okay, what is the next thing? And so uh, so it was a great day, of course. And the thing that we really zeroed in on very quickly, and that uh, came from because of our background was that If you thought about the cloud and what really cloud is, the cloud sells you computes and storage, and of course it sells you all these services on top of all that stuff. But effectively, sells you compute and storage. And uh, time and again, we realized a few things. Once we, because we were from the mobile world, we we knew that phones are resource limited, right? They don't. At that time, the phones didn't have. I mean, even now, if you compare... Even it now, to, well,
0: battery is the big limiter yeah, now, but... Battery yeah, battery,
3: and even GPU, if you want to do rendering. Sure, fun. yeah. So uh, they didn't have uh, tremendous sort of resources like that. Disconnections used to happen, right? Networkers was not like always connected. So what do you do with that places? And then the other thing was latency, right? Like there were all these applications of researchers Being in MSR, I, I was privy to all these amazing researchers, they're working on some fabulous, like holographic stuff, right? Like you could actually, in fact, uh, there were researchers who were doing hollow, hollow uh, teleportation. So you can actually see somebody sitting next to you, you know, in holograph So anyway, so how was this ever going to become real, right? Because this acquired latencies, which were really, really low. And so as we discussed more and more, it became clear that wouldn't it be cool if the cloud not only sold storage, it not only sold computes, but it also stored latency. But mm-hmm. the problem was that internet latency is uncontrollable.
0: <laughs> right. 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 When well, you're dependent on a bunch of other other people's best effort networks, it's hard to yeah. deliver an SLA.
3: <laughs> That's right. And so again, think about it logically and then it sort of made sense. Yeah, okay. If the computing if the data can't come to us, we're gonna go to the data. So we got to create these, uh, you know, subsystems. Really, be like people had been talking about things of, of this nature about ubiquitous computing world, about embedded systems or embedded uh, computings in your environment and things of that nature. And so we thought, wouldn't it be wouldn't be cool to have edge where the latency was small. So if it was a Wi-Fi connection or if was some other connection which is like less than, one millisecond latency from the play from the way the data was originated to where it has to be processed, then we would have it. So that's the big idea that came, and then of course, the when we when we hit that idea, uh, then we started to think, okay, well, this is great for disconnected operations too, because if if the cell phone thing goes away, you can still operate. So you have disconnected operations. So sort of, you know that if you just look at the IoT world now, one of the things that sells most is in places where they don't have great connectivity, and so they have edge computing to actually keep the processing and things going till the connectivity come back. In fact, if you yeah. So how's so, that
0: form of edge computing different than on-premises computing?
3: So on-premise, well, it's not that different. I mean, on-prem is not that different. Although I would say that edge computing people, you know this very well. So different people think of edge computing differently. So, you know, there is, there, there, yeah. the whole problem was about the definition of what that even means. So I actually used to not object, but get irritated by that sort of way because I had a certain definition in my head. But then, as being a researcher again, I started to realize that it's, it was fine. Like, you know, it, it led to a tremendous amount of exploration. On-prem computing was less about edge per se, but just about the fact that you didn't want the data to move out of where you were. And you wanted the computers to be closer. You wanted to feel secure about that. Edge is a lot more about uh, resource, compute offloads. For example, you know, you you mentioned Akamai. Uh, Akamai, uh, you know, pioneered and did a lot of work with CDNs, but they were not. Uh, CDN was just a caching thing. Data offload. Yeah, <laughs> but there wasn't but, much but compute. computing. Yeah. Uh, there was no processing per se, because yeah. once you decide on processing, you go down. That's a different path altogether in terms of how you.
0: Yeah. Office. And they added some processing later with the sort of workers concept, but it was yeah. really about doing some last minute, you know, rendering type stuff.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so Edge Computing became started to become a thing. I have a story for you about how it hit, if you're interested. In yes, that. I absolutely am interested. The history yeah, of it is so, fascinating. So I actually got in front of the SLT, Microsoft SLT. Uh, Steve Barmer was the CEO at that time in okay. 2010. And I presented these ideas that, you know this is the next big thing i said you know we've got to uh, whoever uh, gets the latency war is going to win because you're going to just enable all these applications that didn't exist in the past so steve at that time asked me a question that i wasn't prepared for he said what would you change today so i you know i always was thinking in the future yeah <laughs> right you asked me about the future i would tell you and this is 2009 2010 yeah, so and I'm in front of the SLT, which means all the uh, you know at that time I don't know if they call EVPs, but basically this is the top brass at Microsoft, including the CEO. Fifteen of them or twenty of them, and I'm standing in front of them and telling them, "What do you change today?" So now I'm like, "Okay." So I uh, just mumbled something like speech, because speech mod in my head, speech models were very big at that time, and you know, so I thought eh, instead of going to the cloud, you would bring it to the edge, and so things would go better. Right. And there was an EVP who who managed all the speech thing and. He took a <laughs> offense to that or whatever, you know, he's sort of like, no. And so anyway, there was more more fun in that uh, meeting. Uh, I wouldn't go to that because that, that's in itself. But however, uh, I kicked myself for not having uh, tremendously good answers, clear answers at that time. So what happens is, uh, so as usual, they thought, ah, great research, interesting ideas, but you know, asking for too much, like, you know, because this, this meant they would have to spend a bunch of money. Hmm. So anyway, I go back. And then in 2014, I get you know, another chance. So that's four years later, and this time I nail it, like completely nail it, like in the sense that it was a 30-minute talk went on for one hour and 30 minutes. Everybody is engaged, the CEO is engaged, the SLD is engaged. They ask me questions because this time I was systematically walked through not just the idea, but all these different things that I had built out. And showed them how this would be so much better. And it sort of opened their eyes, like the kinds of things I showed at that time. So he he asked me, Steve, at that time, how much gonna cost? And I was like, you know, again, I wasn't prepared, I don't know what he meant. But Satya, who was sitting in that meeting, he was not an EVP at that time, he was not a CEO at that time. He actually said something like $380 million or something, he said. And Steve said, Done. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, you know, what is this? Like, I, I, don't, I don't know. What, <laughs> I, I didn't go in there with like... Three, anyway, uh, but things don't work this way. Like, it's not like, you know, in an engineering companies of the Microsoft caliber, it works a little differently. So, okay, so the CEO is all bought in. Others are bought in. So now you have to work with the absolute technical top brass, right? I wasn't a technical fellow at that time. So they are distinguished engineers and technical fellows. These are the top people in, in the technical area in Microsoft. And so... They started saying, When I, mean, I met with them afterwards because now they had to execute on it. And they were people who were not naysayers, but they said, hey, every per- the cloud is going to be within 30 milliseconds of everybody on the planet. If that is the case, then why do we need edge? Right? That's kind sure. of, it. and I said, obviously said the usual things that you hear now quite a bit, but hey, you know, words are cheap in uh, Microsoft. Code is king. You got to build, you got to show. So at that point, I sort of realized that, man, no matter how much I say, this is upward battle because I'm asking for too much in, from a perspective of how much build-out they're going to need. And you know, there are all these questions too, which you may come to, which is management and how do you manage edges and you a know, truckload problem, et cetera. Anyway, a long story short, I went back determined that I needed to show them where the money is in some sense. And so as I was thinking about it, I was in a sabbatical that led me to the live video analytics things because I saw cameras everywhere. Yeah. And I thought and I thought to myself, what the hell? Who's looking at these cameras? Right? You know, like who's looking at the live feeds? And terrorism was at its peak too and things were bad. And so it was always like after the effect, right? Something bad happens and you go back and look at the camera. And I thought, we have the cloud, we have computer vision, you know, we have every element. Now we have the edge. That's it. I need to show that, you know, cameras are going to be everywhere. They're going to be part of our life anyway for different security purposes, congestion management, traffic, all kinds of like good stuff. Yeah. And I'm going to use it on the edge. Yeah. so I started pursuing
0: that. Well, it turns out cameras are good sensors for things even outside of the visible spectrum, which we don't tend to think about.
3: Yes, you know, yes, you know, t- right. t-
0: temperature reading with infrared and things like that. Yeah. You know, which might yeah. be really applicable given COVID right now.
3: Yeah, that's right. That is exactly right. And and you know, people sometimes may think about privacy you all. I I actually thought about privacy from first principles, and I you know I I wanted to build everything that was that would never compromise human privacy in that sense. And uh, we can talk about that some other time. But nevertheless, that was uh, first and foremost in my head uh, when I was thinking about cameras. But I knew that cameras can be used for a tremendous good too. So I started working on that, pursued that pretty heavily. And now, by the way, you can sort of see that Microsoft just announced a live video analytics product uh, that is out there. Uh, other companies are announcing it. We We open source some of that stuff, and it all works on the edge. But in the meantime, as we were doing this, IoT hit. And that happened because it was a VC. He gave a talk and said, the cloud is dead. It was a very provocative talk. The cloud is dead. So everybody like... Peter Levine. Peter Levine, that's right.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know Peter really well. He funded yeah, my last company. So
3: that, yeah. Okay, great. Wonderful. So he's cloud is dead. And that caught attention of everybody. including yes. our CEO and everybody else. And so, what does it mean? But what he was seeing was that in manufacturing, for example, Industry 4.0, in other places, retail, in other places that, you know, you needed to have uh, some computing. Uh, it, everything couldn't be moved to cloud. And so we had also acquired LinkedIn at that time. So Kevin Scott joined us Who as a CTO. He was very much on top of this stuff. He really understood it. He got to the to the ear of Satya, explained to him why this is important. And then Satya made it. And they made an announcement. We're going to spend $5 billion on IoT and Edge boom, that had a ripple effect in the entire company, in an entire uh, nation. Because when a company like that is going to put $5 billion, that's a lot. And that just shows you there's a market, you know, that's a big market. And so now you start to see a lot more things start to happen. So while I was on this uh, journey on video analytics, I still believe video analytics is a truly killer app, but IoT hit pretty big. And so, yeah. uh, so, so everything, yeah. So that's kind of how it works. So I'll stop here because I've been talking. Well, no, and, I, and I, it's, it's interesting because,
0: you know, when and I've, I've been, you know, as a marketer, part of my struggle has been how do we explain edge computing to people that are coming at it fresh, that don't understand it. And one of the things that I've started talking about, and we published it in the last day of the edge report is the three acts of the internet. You know, the first act was, it's just amazing that you could sit at a browser and connect to any computer anywhere in the world that was on the internet and request something. And the fact that it may have taken, you know, hundreds of milliseconds or even ones of seconds was fine because it was just pure magic that you could actually get it. Um, And then we tried to start consuming, you know, higher resolution video and we got the buffer symbol. And that's when the CDN really became because we were mostly downward consumption. This is back when we had DSL and, you know, it was asymmetrical, you know, you had a lot more downward bandwidth and we wanted to consume these large images and these rich media websites and videos without buffering. And the CDN solved that. And that was sort of the second act of the internet. But now we're in this third act, which I, I believe edge computing is the defining component. And the biggest difference to me, and I'm interested if, if you also see this, is that we're moving from a world of primarily humans talking to machines or maybe humans talking to other humans like we are now, which, again, we tend to operate in ones of seconds, right? I mean, sure, you know, frame rates and stuff, fractions of a second. But in general, our conscious minds operate in ones of seconds to a machine that's glacial. And when you have billions of machines all generating you know, terabytes of data because they can. Right? What what are you going to do with all this? And it seems pretty clear that a, there's a lot of really actionable information that has a half-life of tiny amounts of time. And so, so I've, I've really seen us moving into this world, like what's going to create this like demand? And I think IoT really, it's another way of looking at IoT. It's like we're moving to a world where you can have all these machines talking to other machines, putting out data that is going to be lost most of its use by the time a human ever has a chance to see it. And you've got to have this like low latency. So let's talk about latency a little bit. So you mentioned like 30 milliseconds. Help help our, our listeners understand like where that 30 milliseconds come from. So what that means and then how it's achieved today. Yeah. Right. So
3: I, I, I actually, uh, by the way, I want to comment to you on uh, the way you described it. I think you're right on that we are going to need computing elements closer and then the operation speeds is way beyond human comprehension and human speeds. And so, and we can't uh, take the time to move that data to the cloud, uh, given the internet exists. So then having an edge computing device, which can actually do this machine to machine communication and machine to machine processing is going to be very, very uh, important as we move forward. So you're right on on that. The 30 millisecond thing number that I gave you was uh, sort of thrown at me as like how, much time, you know, as we continue to build out more and more cloud data centers around the world from different people, then the amount of time it takes for packets to go leave, leave your device and get to the...
0: So, so to put that in kind of like terms that people understand, uh, all yeah. over the world, there are these Azure zones. Yeah. Right, these yeah. These, yeah. these essentially data centers that either you've built or own, or maybe you're you're leasing space from somebody else's facility. But it's a it's some place where Azure has compute, and there are so many of them. If I'm understanding this correctly, that for most people with a wired connection, because. As you know, wireless is a, we're in the process of fixing wireless, but the wired connection is 30 milliseconds or less from one of those data centers. Is that correct?
3: Right. But but I, I want, yes, but it's going to be even less than 30 milliseconds. So our aspirations is our, you know, that was a while ago that the conversation okay. happened as have actually become uh, even more. And we, as we are building out uh, and we build out more and more, you're correct in everything, which is that the wired connection to uh, getting to the first point of entry into Azure will be less than 30 milliseconds, for example. Think like that. But and that counts
0: is, the time over the last mile network, which is typically owned by somebody else.
3: The last mile, well, it depends. So if it's a wireless, then it doesn't count that, right? Because sure. right. the wireless, I mean, LTE, I, the rule of thumb yeah. I use is yeah, oh, 70 milliseconds. Anyway, so, but yeah, for, from the point you generate a packet in a wired network and you send it to us, we are very close to you that way. Right. But here's here's the deal. I mean, so, you know, you, you're trying to sort of get it to the point where users will understand what does that mean? Real, right. What, That's like, what I was going for. We, we know about seconds and then 30 milliseconds. And that doesn't seem too like, long. And why is that a problem? Like, isn't that enough? The thing is that the way our, our network protocols are designed, uh, they are very chatty. They have a lot of overhead, you know, and, and for good reasons. It's not like, you know, the design not smartly. They were designed for particular reasons. I mean, error
0: Correction that can arrive out of order. Right. There's Networks all kinds are, of resilience in it. Yeah.
3: That's correct. That works. And, and then congestion happens. Lots of packets in the air. You need to back off. You got to like figure out and you need to play nice. So anyway, so, so that 30 milliseconds, which seems like a real small number, actually, Starts to compound when you think about the time it takes for a packet to deliver. So it would be great if, like, a packet starts to deliver and then boom, 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 everything goes. But it doesn't happen that way, right?
0: Hmm.
3: It it's just a it's just a number. And then, if I could uh, show you, make it visual, it would be much more easier. But if you think about gaming as an example, and you sort of think about how example. much time, yeah, how much time it takes for the packet to get there, it has to render it, it has to decompress the packet, render it, process it, come in back. And then you add, keep adding those milliseconds and on top of that, you add 30 milliseconds and you add all the round trip latency with TCP or UDP or whatever uh, protocol you're following. That number then starts up looking very big and gets to the point when the gaming is not really cool. Uh, like when you, you, if you're doing first person shooting game or some other, uh, you know, live game, you cannot tolerate those sort of latencies at all. So, yeah, thirty milliseconds is actually a big number, and uh, then going back to what you were suggesting in the machine-to-machine communication, it's an eternity. I mean, that is just not going to work. So, really, we need to come down to one or two milliseconds, and and uh, and uh, there has been a lot of work. I mean, you hear about five G a lot, but in five G, for example, uh, it's been in uh, progress for a long time, and people have done the analysis of how much latency different applications can tolerate. So if you think about AR, VR, you know, how much can it tolerate? If you think about platooning, where vehicle-to-vehicle vehicle falling, so you have congestion on the roads, how much that can follow. And it turns out that usually it is less than 10 milliseconds. So if, if we can give them a network, or if they, which means if we can give them a way to get their packets from the time it generates to the first computing device, you know, within 10 milliseconds, then magic can happen. And so that's kind of how you do all the calculations. That's why, you know, networks are built that, now being built that way to provide you with this new class of applications. So these milliseconds matter a lot. Yeah, and
0: one of the things that, that I didn't realize until I'd, I'd studied this field for a while, you know, we talk about latency and we talk about round-trip latency, but jitter is actually, in many cases, more important because when you're trying to control something, you know, a, a robotic drone, a robotic arm, something with that, you need discrete, predictable latencies yep. uh, below a certain threshold and it's one thing to say 10 milliseconds on average and you might have a tail latency that's 90 milliseconds you know that happens once a day which might be fine if if it causes a hiccup in fortnite but it might be a disaster if it's you know providing decision support to a vehicle or something that's
3: correct
0: yeah um,
3: predictable, predictable uh, networking yeah it's very yeah um, predictable
0: jitter, predictable right. networking and and yep. you know the two things that that cause latency and jitter are well, the, the distance, right? Speed of light becomes important at longer distances. And then the number of network hops. And yeah. it's pretty intuitive that the farther out in the network you get, the more of those you reduce. You know, as you mentioned, you know, you've, got, you've got the entire internet between you and the traditional cloud. So if you look at that, let, that let's
3: say... And, 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 uh, and then we haven't even talked about wireless. Like if you add wireless yeah, to right. the mix... Then it's a, a different ball game together, right?
0: It it is, yeah. And,
3: and Internet is not like the Internet works on a protocol called BGP or border gateway protocol. And that protocol has not been optimized for latency sensitivity. So it has been optimized for cost sensitivity. So when as the packets are routed, they are not routed with the latency in mind. And so that's why you end up seeing all these problems and Jitter, as you mentioned, which is a, yeah. which is a killer for many things, yeah.
0: So, so, if you if you look at at this this general function of edge, and let's say it's it's sub thirty milliseconds, but you're right. There's a sort of inflection point at these you know ten milliseconds. There's actually an interesting one at sub one millisecond. You know, if you look at the the virtualization of the five G networks, you know the the distance between the remote radio head and the the BBU is seventy five microseconds, right? So just just below one millisecond.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, and that's about fifteen kilometers. So, so two questions. One is um, how do you get compute farther out than it is today where where does it go Um, and then who owns it and how do I consume it you know do I buy devices and put them on my premises or do I consume them from a cloud provider like Microsoft and if I'm consuming it from a cloud provider Microsoft where are those machines you know are they in micro data centers adjacent to the baseband units and the cable head ends are they on premise with like an Azure stack is it a mixture of both like how do you see that sort of rolling out where where do you see that how do you see that happening
3: yeah, yeah. So uh, there's actually a lot of uh, information in the question that you've asked me. And uh, so let me, let me try to piece this apart a little bit. I've got the expert on the line. I'm going to try no, to no, get no. as much as I can. No, this, is, this is great. This is great. I, I love the conversation. Uh, so, yeah, you, you put a lot of information in that question. So let's uh, just back off and think about 5G. I brought it up and you brought it up. And you mentioned the 30 millisecond. I mentioned 30 millisecond. You picked up on that. But again, I want to just uh, emphasize that that was many, many years ago. Now our aspirations is to be even less. So, you know, I don't want to give a number per se, but nevertheless, it's lower than 30 milliseconds. But anyway, going back. So I think the way 5G is evolving and the way it was described, been built, you understand there's the mobile core, there's the radio access network part of it, and there's obviously the provided network part of it. And all of that has to work and everything has to be pretty low latency and so so i think the trick is going to be so 5g for example has a concept of network slicing they have a term which is called if i get ultra reliable link layer uh, communications which is where they specify 1 to 4 millisecond on air latency right from from mobile devices and packets to the base station. Now, so
0: if you want to be sub 10, you've only got another six milliseconds. to.
3: That's right. That's right. And it's not just six, you have to process that. So right. you, you, know, <laughs> you, right. you get, you get RF signals, you know, and yeah. then you've got to move them and you got yeah. to packetize them made into IP packets to all the mobile core, server so mobility handling, all that good stuff. So your time budgets are pretty low. So, which is why edge is starting to, take off in a huge way in the operators and telecommunication worlds as well. Sure. So the interesting thing to me is that a lot of the functions that these that the operators used to do were done in hardware, right? They were done in uh, very specialized pieces of hardware.
0: Dedicated appliances, yeah.
3: Yeah. But but that was a problem too, because if you sort of think about how long it takes to uh, for us to go from one generation to another generation, it takes tens of years because it right. costs billions of dollars. Yeah. The interesting thing uh, is that I that I had mentioned earlier was that now we believe you can do all this in software. I mean, there is oh, no yeah. well.
0: I mean, you open up an Ericsson box or a Nokia box, and it's an Intel PC. There <laughs> is
3: Intel no not for specialized hardware anymore. Yeah. We can do all of it. FPGAs in and, and some of it
0: you can even do on the on the the core Intel the high end right. Intel chips. Yeah.
3: Right, and then uh, if you do it in software, where are those boxes sitting? That's yes. where the kilometers. That's is the question. Sits. That's where yeah, I was getting at. Yeah. So then we'll see how the world evolves. I mean, you know, all the operators have uh, central offices. So I think we did some calculation and I think I read in the spec too, you can go actually up to 40 kilometers away uh, from the base stations, but 20 kilometers is for LTE that you have that you can be away and still be able to manage. From the, from the, between the, the,
0: the remote radio head and the base station from the base Correct. station to, yeah. Correct. Okay.
2: Correct.
3: And so, so then the question is that, okay, so real real estate becomes interesting here now. Who owns yeah. the real estate, right? If the operators have the real estate and, you know, if Microsoft has the real estate or some other company has the real estate and then we can put computing there, that's where the computing is going to be? And that's – so the, So as you look at the future and you know, sort of think about, like, your users or people, you know, uh, who are thinking about, okay, so I understand you guys figured out the low-latency stuff, but how does it help us? So envision the falling world now – if everything in software, you can actually create abstractions. You can create an equivalent of Win32. So if I may give you an analogy of the PC, all right? So the PC came about, There was hardware. uh, Microsoft wrote the uh, operating system. I mean, Apple did it too, but Microsoft wrote the operating system. And then on on top of that, created Win32 API. And Mm -hmm. then the world partied, right? There were so many companies that got built. Fortunes were made. PCs were (laughs) everywhere. Now the network... If you actually create software, I mean, if, if it's all about software, you can think of a network operating system, and then you can think of an API that you put on top of that. Yeah. And then on top yeah. of that, you've got all these uh, applications and developers can party. So you're looking at a brand new ecosystem that is now seeded because of edge computing. So there's this classical notion of edge computing that you know, we'd conceived a long time ago, which was about putting computing close to the uh, where the data is generating the newer version of computing is where the edge computing is part of the infrastructure and sure. it's actually abstracted yeah. out so that now you can use, you're much more close to the island or network in this particular case and start to do. And so now if you go down the path of either IOT applications, machine to machine or do AR, VR or vehicles or whatever, you can start to say, well, I don't actually have to exist in the cloud. I can exist on the edge. I can exist somewhere else. And so I think that's how the world will evolve and who are sort of, Uh, Makes that available to uh, people uh, faster and makes it easier to them. Uh, I love Microsoft because Microsoft has done this, like this sort of uh, uh, stuff in the past quite a bit. And uh, because we have, we love the developers, we build a lot of software to make their lives easy. So uh, Microsoft has all the elements that can make it exceedingly successful in this quest to, as we embrace the new world and then just change the way people think about where the computing sits and you know where to write the applications and development and things of that nature
0: yeah and I, you know and i i um i come from the cloud world and so infrastructure is relatively new to me and in, in this idea that like the cloud exists somewhere physical yeah. <laughs> uh and it has moving parts it's got fans and yeah, <laughs> things like yeah, that yeah, yeah, um yeah. and when you really get into this world like you wonder why anybody other than a cloud provider would actually ever want to own a server yeah, um, yeah, data centers yeah. are messy places. They're hard to run. It's hard to make them efficient unless you've got some economies of scale. It's a really yeah. interesting world to be able to offer. Very
3: capital intensive business. I mean, very very capital intensive. It's yeah. it not an easy business because uh, you know the, there is churn on these servers. We have to buy constantly buy new servers, constantly buy new hardware, constantly fix the software. And why would like for example, if you if you have a store which you know you're selling ice cream or you're you know doing something, but you still need some IT or you're a dentist's office, you know, yeah. why would you have to?
0: I, I want it all SaaS. I want a dumb yeah. terminal. Yeah. <laughs> I really do. But then
3: at the back end, you're right. It is not uh, it is not easy or work. It is cruddy work in some sense. It's it, it takes it's very hard and to run these things on scale. I mean. You need, uh, you need actually pretty smart people who understand the science of it or can build it and keep it together and make it work all the time. So, yeah.
0: I yeah, guess. and you know, let's go back to one of the original comments you said where you said, you know, well, we, we, sell, we sell storage, we sell compute, why aren't we selling latency? And today I can provision an Azure instance in one of what, 160 or so zones, is that right? Something like that. And I can presumably get storage in those same zones I can imagine a future where I could request a low latency network slice in one of those zones. So let's imagine that that world exists and let's imagine it's not 160, it's 2000, right? Cause you're, you've got them in these central offices and these micro data centers that are adjacent to the baseband units and all this stuff. Where is the software for managing that, right? You know, in the, In the old world where I could, I was managing, you know, four data centers in one country, I could a human could allocate those things. But when I'm worried about running a workload or having a piece of data where I need it, when I need it at a particular time, maybe at a particular cost because edge resource constrained, they might be auction based. Like where's the software and the abstraction layers to make that possible? Where, where are we on that journey?
3: Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's great. You, I mean, yeah, how do you scale on this, this level? So uh, how do you even write a,
0: a basic app that's so highly distributed? That it's actually well.
3: So I think I think uh, right. There are two again two questions here. So one is actually of the is the management question, which is that all cloud companies, not just Microsoft, have figured out a way to uh, and have some very sophisticated management software, which ensures that everything, all their servers are running well, and uh, they do predictive analytics to ensure if something is going bad, they can actually bring it down or bring something back up, back it up. And so the consumer and the user never sees any difference. And so similarly, application writers, developers, you know, they they get a VM and they run they run their programs on it, and then things go bad. We can actually move things around fast enough that they don't see the difference. Okay, so that world we have invested uh, quite a bit on, and so so we know pretty uh, well how to manage a large infrastructure with uh, millions of servers, and uh, we manage it very well. In this new world that you and I just talked about, where we have actually already gone in, we have edge zones and we have uh, edge devices and edge computing devices that are at the uh, outskirts of the large clouds, but they're inside our network sometimes, sometimes outside the network. We have been building uh, management software that allows us to take into consideration the speed of the network between the mothership and these uh, edge devices and then based on that is still able to recover if any failures happens or faults happen. so we are going to get to the point where we will manage this and then of course we will uh, figure out how to scale this well the second question you asked was from a developer's perspective where does this all sit and where are the applications and they're all over the world and all over different things can you do it that is a more interesting problem to me. I mean, there I think there is work to be done quite a bit. I mean, so right now, if you think about it, we uh, in the cloud world, we offer these uh, notions of regions, right? So Microsoft, for example, has 54 regions, And so you can say US West, I want my applications to work on the data centers that exist in US West, which covers right. it. And so in some sense, it's like you prescribe a little bit and then inside uh, US West, there are multiple data centers. And then, you know, you can, you know, we can control where it goes and manage the latency. In this world, uh, you in the edge world, uh, you may have to be a little prescriptive, either prescriptive or you will have a monitoring systems that can actually predict what latency you're getting from different regions and different edge zones. And based on that latency could move your computes into those areas, right? So we've actually got in research, we've got some projects going on which which do that, which sort of says, if I have a packet coming, which edge should it hit? And from that edge, which uh, data center it should hit? And since there are many, many options or many edges that it could hit, and, and it sort of depends on what is the latency to the edge, uh, what is uh, sort of the, uh, how much the edge is being used, you know, their compute security free, to now, which cloud you want to go, or which data center you want to go. So it's a joint optimization problem that one has to come up with. So those are the kinds of technologies we are actually building already. we have and are building. And then uh, from our developers, our goal would be that the developer uh, has, doesn't have to think too much about this.
0: Yeah, they make some declarative
3: yeah, specification. They, they, that's right. They give us, that's right. And then we from that, we can figure out, and we can build the underlying system so that we can move things around seamlessly and provide them, try to uh, do the best to give them the, the SLA that they have accounted for. So these are the things, these are the amazing innovations that will happen over the next uh, several years and things will become uh, much, much more simpler. Our, our thing is to keep it as simple as possible for anybody to be able to use this infrastructure piece. So, yeah.
0: yeah. And so, you know, the the, the the origin of all this edge can sort of be traced back, you know, to that, that meeting in 2008, it's 2020. Great, yeah. It's 2020, great, yeah. <laughs> it's 2020. like right. that feels like an eternity. Yes. Where are we on the edge journey? And when when are we going to reach critical mass? How close are
3: we? So, here's, so the, <laughs> one way to think about it is the way you put it, which is that, okay, that was like 11, 12 years ago, man. And like, what the heck, you know? The other way to put about it, which is the way I like to think about it. Wow, we're getting there. We've gotten there. Because now when I talk to people, it's a slightly different problem that I see, so it 's not no longer about trying to convince anybody the need for edge. It seems like people get it like, well that's you know? happened
0: in like the last two years.
3: Yeah, yeah, so they get it, and that 's okay. You know a rule of thumb that I 've used in my world of research has been uh, seven years. It takes seven years from a point where you conceive an idea in a lab to the time that it might see a light of day or you know get out there. And that's sort of average, right? It can go more, it can go less. Sure. So when you get to like 10 years or eight, nine years, it's not like so much far away from what I thought this would happen. Because, because even though like things seem to be moving very fast, the pace of innovation is very fast, but it takes time for big ideas to you know seed themselves in, and they are then disruptive. I mean, cloud was a big idea. Edge is a big idea, so uh, so anyway. So going back, when I talk to individuals everywhere, I I no longer have to make the case for edge. It's not even a thing anymore. So the thing that people, most people, are now looking at is how to monetize the edge, right? How yeah. to actually uh, light up these things. But then there are certain techs that we are waiting for, like you know rollout of 5G, uh, and then that as that comes, edge will become a lot more useful in the industry in the industrial sector manufacturing space industry 4.0 is all about infusing it into uh, manufacturing process to improve efficiency so that is happening too and their edge is sort of the, the the thing that that is making it all happen so i believe you asked the question when you think it's all go cool. i think that we are uh, the, the momentum is increasing i think that over the next several years, the pace of innovation, the pace of products—like if you think about large companies and the number of products that are coming out—you know, they're quite good and quite impressive. I mean, uh, some of the products that you can now buy on the edge. So I, I would say that in a few years, you you, you should see. You know, it's I actually believe it's already there, but you should see a lot more pervasive. One uh, thing that I kind of want to say. Let me just turn to uh, 5G for a second, right?
0: Yeah, well, I want to ask about 5G because we have wired connections that can deliver super low latencies. Why isn't edge commuting here
3: with wired connections? Because I think the most interesting things in this world that need computing resources are mobile and sensors. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I literally feel that. I mean, uh, even yeah. when you talked about the-,
0: the Internet of Mobile Things and the Internet of Things that are hard to put wires to because there's so yeah. many of them. <laughs>
3: yeah, and 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 they are going to be so pervasive, and they're going to be billions of such devices. I mean, you can't even imagine. Like, I've been actually, I uh, uh, have colleagues in academia all over the place. I've been sort of working with them. One friend of mine is in Princeton, and he's talking about putting. These wires inside homes, like in in the walls, so they actually act as antennas, and then you know they, they improve the RF uh, propagation. There, uh, there are people talking about so these sensors, uh, these mobile sensors, and these uh, mobile devices these devices are going to be so pervasive, and that's what's going to light up the world in, in a really really great way. And so for that, you need wireless, and that needs edge too, because they just they need, as you mentioned earlier on the show, you talked about battery and energy conservation and things of that nature. We need to keep all of that in mind.
0: Well, in five, 5G is, is, as you pointed out, it's just building out the 5G infrastructure itself, especially with the virtualized network function is creating demand for compute at the edge to run right. the network. That's and correct. so it's not that big of a leap to say, well, gosh, the marginal cost of adding a few racks of servers to run application workloads is small yeah. compared to the cost we had to do to just upgrade the network. That's so I exactly. totally see that. I see how that's driving a tipping point. That's, that's a really interesting perspective.
3: Yeah, I, I think of wireless as a computing problem. I don't think of wireless as a communication problem. And I've worked in wireless all my life, right? Just yeah, that's to, really like, interesting. But, Have you always I've, thought of it as a computing problem? No, actually, I've started thinking about it uh, more recently about it as a computing problem, and I'll tell you what I what I mean by that. What mm. I mean by that is that. Now, for example, you've heard of MIMO, you've heard of massive MIMO, the terms yep. I mean, for the users, I mean, multiple and multiple output, multi-user MIMO is when you actually can form beams towards every client and you can actually simultaneously send packets to them. And so your capacity-
0: Yeah, it's basically enables orders of magnitudes more devices to simultaneously communicate.
3: Right, and increases the capacity from the same spectrum that you have. Right. You know, if you think about Shannon Limits and then you think about it. Okay. Okay. Anyway, so the point is that we can now, because we do everything in software, we can increase the capacity of your spectrum by the computes that we provide to it. So if you give me signal, I'll give you lots and lots of signal, I can actually disambiguate from that signal and get useful information out of that. And that's all computing problem. So by, by tying the communication yeah. with the computing, I am starting to now handle the more fundamental problem of spectrum uh, unavailability or not having enough spectrum. I don't know if you remember, like several years ago, there was a lot of like who would cry and you know, lots of like there was a, even a presidential committee about spectrum being a scarce resource and we don't have enough and all that kind of stuff, right? That's true fundamentally, but but nevertheless have we done enough with it? We actually have some amazing technology and in information theory information systems and, and we can now light all that up because now we are looking at that as a computing problem and we already know how to deal with Scaling up compute: How to put more uh, commodity servers in there? How to put more containers in there? We know how to sort of parallelize stuff, and so voila, this is going to be like, wow! Now we we should not have a capacity problem. We should not have a disconnected problem. We should not have congestion. We should not have you know all the other problems that we have. And edge is going to be like a phenomenal thing that will make all of that happen. And oh, by the way, you're totally right. Even the operating system on the edge will kind of have to be real-time-ish. But then there will be enough CPU left over which the application writers and developers can use when it's not doing that other stuff, right? So now you can say, well, I can monetize that hardware and the computing, the general purpose computing that I've made available at the edge. I can offer this to developers. My God, that's going to be awesome. I'm going to make a lot more money. And then developers are thinking, oh my God, now I have a new way because now I I don't have to worry about latency. I can put this gaming application, this telemedicine, this stuff that I've been wanting to do, this machine-to-machine thing I've been wanting to do. So all that gets hot and enabled. So, yeah. That's so so meant-
0: when, yeah. when do you think the, the edge is just going to be part of the cloud? We're not going to talk about it any differently. It's just going to be, oh, yeah, of course you can provision a low-latency workload in, you know, East Chicago. When do you see that point where it's just the way we build applications?
3: <laughs> Predicting the future. Ah. <laughs> <Looking>
0: <laughs> you, you, you can the cheat and say ball. seven years. <laughs>
3: <laughs> crystal ball, yeah. Looking at the crystal ball. Um, what can I tell you? I think I think we were. I hope we were not in COVID phase when we were talking about this. I would be a lot more optimistic uh, right now. I mean, I'm still very optimistic. I think we are gonna uh, we're gonna come out of all this stuff that is happening to us right now and into a world which we, are innovating again and doing some great stuff. I think I think well, you can start thinking about edge as part of cloud, even now, like, because we are invested. I mean, Microsoft is invested, you know, we are building it out. We are building out the infrastructure. We are going to make it available. It's going to be uh, there. The operators, you know, are interested. I know they are very, very interested in in working with us and enjoying uh, because they benefit tremendously. You know, it's great upside for them. It's a beautiful match. Oh, yeah. New revenue
0: streams. Well, and and it's someday, and I don't know I don't know when this is going to happen, but it's conceivable that, that one of the telcos would say, well, wh- why do I even want to own servers? Why don't I just run my core network functions on Microsoft servers, for instance? You know, we're but, away I mean, from that, but I could see that. I could see, I could see a competitive, just a different capital structure for a telco.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we de- this is public knowledge, so there's nothing major I'm telling you about. But, you know, we acquired firm Networks. That's right. Affirm,
0: yeah, Affirm, just recently. Home
3: Networks is the number one provider of mobile core services. So, so yeah, you're not that far away from saying <laughs> that, you know. I, I actually think this is this is great for everybody. I really do. I think that... Uh, we need to build on each other's strengths, and you know we are strong in certain areas and the and the operators are strong in another area and so uh, I think joining forces is a natural thing to do it's really, really good to do so so you 're not too often you're <laughs> thinking about what is going to happen and what might happen in the future yeah
0: victor, that is a great place to wrap your enthusiasm is infectious. I really really enjoyed talking to you. I've uh, followed your work since I discovered it, which was probably three or four years ago when I got into edge computing. And it's helped me come to a new understanding. And it's, it's fun to hear how your perspective has changed. And uh, I hope someday to have you back on the show and we can see what's, what's happened between now and then.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, your enthusiasm as well. It's really nice to see somebody who is as enthusiastic and knowledgeable as you are and has been in the in the industry and looking at it deeply. So thank you for the great questions. I, I had a good time too, and I hope some of your uh, uh, people who hear this will enjoy it as well. So thank you Oh, very I'm sure they will. How, how can people find you online, Victor? Oh, I'm very easy to find. I mean, any, go to any of your search engines, just type my name. But
0: uh, you, you mean the name. Bing search engine, right?
3: Exactly, of course. Is, is, is there <laughs> in, in the else?
0: edge browser, the big search is, engine in the edge browser. Is there
3: something? Is there anything else? I, <laughs> I mean, don't come know. On. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course, yeah.
0: It was so. an absolute pleasure.
1: That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Magnificent Seven: VaporIO, Packet, Seagate, Catchpoint, Ori Industries, Zenlayer, and Netfoundry. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate five stars and review, and share the show with someone you know who might enjoy it. To get in touch with the show, email us at team at overtheedgepodcast.com. Thank you for listening.
2: Seagate is making mass capacity object storage open at last with Cortex Intelligent Object Storage Software. Cortex is 100% open-source object storage that enables efficient capture and consolidation of massive, unstructured datasets for the lowest cost per petabyte. Designed, built, and maintained by Seagate and a community of data scientists and enterprise storage experts, Cortex brings Exabyte scalability to your private cloud. Learn more and join the community at seagate.com.
0: Hey everyone, just a quick reminder. On October 14th, we're going to be bringing the Over the Edge podcast live to Edge Computing World. We'll be recording episodes from the event. And if you'd like to attend, the folks at Edge Computing World have given our listeners a generous 30% discount. So head on over to edgecomputingworld.com and use promo code over the edge, one word for 30% off. There's also a link in the show notes.